A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 114 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report's website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zoom, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook page, at SW Beyond Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the random series of events that lead most Star Wars characters astray, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. I, I must protest. There's nothing random in Star Wars. Those rocks were always supposed to be in front of R2-D2, and his vision always called for Korriban to be called Moraband. Dang it. <laughs> That's right. We've had a, uh, a long string of, of events, I'd say, the last two weeks. You know, we've had uh, legendary EU expanded author, greatness, great man. It's, it's hard for me to even put it into words, but the passing of Aaron Alston has occurred over the last two weeks. Uh, just a moment of silence, if you will. And then to kind of break that up, you know, we've got The Clone Wars has finally come out on Netflix. Uh, you know, that that's the good news. You know, I guess for every negative, there is a positive. And in that regard, you know, we got the uh, Lost Missions or Season 6 as it is and kind of cool stuff going on there. We'll, we'll get into that more. Nathan, did you uh, want to mention what's going on with the Rebels Roundtable real quick? Sure, yeah. Basically what we're doing, since we are gearing up towards Rebels Roundtable to talk about, you know, Rebels, um... And yet that is basically the team from Republic Forces Radio Network, minus Arnie and Jerry, uh, with Mark then added into the mix. The thought process here is that uh, we're going to try to slowly shift people over to Rebels Roundtable and to a new feed for that if they've been listening to Republic Forces Radio Network. So um, we are going in uh, uh, on March 16th. We have our first recording session, and we're going to be recording uh, one arc at a time for what's going on in Season 6 to cover that sort of as an epilogue to Republic Forces Radio Network. And then that'll be episodes that'll be available on uh, the Republic Forces Radio Network website and feed, republicforces.com. It will also, however, be available on the Rebels Roundtable feed that'll be set up at the time. And to supplement this and to get people to think, hey, maybe I should jump over to the Rebels Roundtable feed instead, slowly but surely, we'll be supplementing that uh, only in that feed with some little sort of getting-to-know-you type bits for each of the hosts of the upcoming show. And then the hope is that at some point, possibly on the last arc, we'll also be adding Mark into the mix on Republic Forces slash Rebels Roundtable to cover uh, the Yoda arc, perhaps. And then at some point, since we've covered each of the different seasons on this show, we'll probably go through and have a, uh, like a general Season 6 episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films in which we'll uh, launch off you know, heading us towards Rebels Roundtable, perhaps with some uh, some insight from the others, or a message from the other members of the team to the members of uh, the audience of this show. So right now it's sort of this weird dovetailing that's going on between this show and Republic Forces Radio Network as we head towards what amounts to sort of that hybrid 
uh, Rebels Roundtable that'll premiere once Rebels itself premieres. Uh, as for Mr. Olsen, I'm, I'm assuming that probably at some point we'll take a moment and do some type of retrospective uh, on the works of Aaron Olsen and his contributions to the EU because they were many and varied and usually some of the best stuff that was out there, uh, particularly the, the humor side of things. Uh, I unfortunately never got a chance to meet him in person, but I know a lot of people in the fan community who have, who, um, who that I've never heard an unkind thing mm-hmm. about the man. So uh, definitely a great loss. And I guess, um, again, we'll talk about it more uh, in the coming weeks here on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Because that, that is one of those huge, huge losses to fandom. I, I too have never had the opportunity to meet him. I was looking forward to celebration for that goal. You know, hopefully that he was going to be there, but now, you know, that, that opportunity is closed. And for those of you that were able to uh, sit down and get to meet him, consider yourselves blessed. Now here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we are going to explore the next chapter of the Vector crossover event in Star Wars Dark Times, issues 11 and 12. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you a quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. And that's right, we are talking about just Dark Times this time. The original intent was Dark Times and Rebellion, uh, with us missing a week uh, when Mark became very, very ill. Um, We decided to sort of spread this out just a little bit more, so we'll hear Vector uh, from Dark Times this time and from Rebellion next time, with the follow-up after that, of course, being Legacy. Um, Now remember, the ground rules here, we are trying to judge Vector based on whether it managed to do what it set out to do. And the three things that were laid out to us as far as what it is they were planning on doing were essentially three check boxes, and you can find them in the letters page from Knights of the Old Republic number 25, which is the first part of Vector. They said they want to, number one, make the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the four series, uh, that is, Knights of the Old Republic, Dark Times, Rebellion, and Legacy. They said Vector must change the course of every series it touches. Uh, Number two, the series must be reader-friendly. The events in Vector must be easily accessible to both new and long-time readers. And then three, readers must not feel that they are forced to purchase issues of series they wouldn't ordinarily read in order to follow the story of the crossover. Every chapter of Vector must work as a standalone story within the story, or within the series, excuse me, in which it takes place. And I think with Dark Times, I don't know, it's kind of hard to say. It does have some actual connections back to previous arcs. They're light connections, but you get the sense that, in a way, Dark Times has been leading up to Vector, like the entire point, in a lot of ways, of parallels and even some references going all the way back to the Path to Nowhere, which were the first two arcs, uh, this being the third, those were leading up to this. Um, That being said, this in and of itself feels like a story that is only there to act as a transition, like this and the Rebellion one, really, are sort of arcs that seem like they're only there to transition Celeste Morn from the time period of Knights of the Old Republic to the time period of Legacy. Um, There are effects in Dark Times on the characters, on the the characters going forward, but the the effects themselves, for for one, they're kind of light. I mean, it resolves a question, 
and it feels like it's a light effect, even if it's even though it includes um, one member of the crew no longer being with the crew, um, it still winds up feeling like it is a very light effect. And I wonder how much of that is because the next arc in this series is Blue Harvest, and it came long, long after these issues were released. In fact, we get to a point where for a while there were people thought that Dark Times had been canceled by the time Blue Harvest finally came around. And because of that, the nature of the story in Blue Harvest, we don't see much of the crew. So if there is an effect on this crew, we don't see the direct effect and the ramifications of it for a very, very long time, by which time the effect has been very much muted. So I wonder if their approach in terms of where the next arc went, if they had taken another arc dealing with the crew of the Uhumele, or the unpronounceable ship, if they had stuck an arc with them as the next arc in this series, which I'm not sure that they could really do because this is now the second arc with no Das Janir in it, um, if they had been able to somehow do that, if maybe that would have left us with a better feel for the effects of this. Instead, what we get is something with a decent script by Mick Harrison, which is, we all now know, uh, Randy Stradley uh, over the Dark Horse Star Wars line at the time, and art by Doug Wheatley. It's really good art in general, and it's decent scripting. But it's, again, it's Dark Times, which is always kind of a nye for me. And while it manages to feel like it is some connective thread within Dark Times and connective thread, at least, within Vector, I'm not sure that they have met their goal of being able to, A, feel like a standalone story that doesn't make you feel like you need to read anything else, um, or B, that it is truly accessible to new readers. Um, and, and really, that first checkbox is kind of iffy. I'd put sort of a, if I were to give it a grade as a teacher, I would give it a C rather than an A or B on that first checkbox. It's, it's just not, it's not the best arc of Dark Times by far, and mm -hmm. it's one of the weaker parts of, of Vector. But uh, I would say that of the parts of Vector, this is my, the, the one that I would rank number three out of four. And um, that's only because Rebellion doesn't do squat. Yeah. Well, there's definite aspects of that, that that ring true there for me. I, I like the fact that when you're going into this story from the Vector standpoint, it serves in the bridge, like you were saying, from KOTOR to this. It, it does that part well. But moving forward from there, it kind of feels like it kind of drops the ball. It, it works only in the regard of from Dark Times over to Rebellion, the way they leave Celeste Morn's character works. Uh, once we get into the Rebellion arc and moving forward, I don't think the way they, they handled that switch off from Rebellion to Legacy works as well as this one did going forward. But it definitely seems like like in a marathon race, like the baton was handed off and it was going well, but the first stumble may have happened here. Uh, you know, where KOTOR left every character moving in a new vector in a new direction based off of the events that happened from this. This in no way happens. Uh, I would say, as of right now, all this does is explains some of the stuff that they had going on. So it, it almost feels like it works more as a wrap-up piece for this than a, a, a alternate vector where it's going to just change things for everybody. I mean, yeah, it does fundamentally change a couple characters in this, but I, I, I don't know. I don't know how well it really serves the story. I mean, we'll get into that deeper as we go. Uh, the fact that it's two issues. I almost think that might be the problem. Maybe they should have, you know, bulked these up a little and went three each. Uh, the, you know, the, the beginning and the end, they're both going at four each. But I don't know. I, I really think that if you're doing four series, you should have gone four, four, and four on all of them or just cut one of the series out. I mean, granted, it, it was the whole, we got to tie into everything that's coming out right now. And so 
I, I get the concept there, but I, I just don't think that by going four at the beginning and four at the end with two in each of these series, I, I just don't think it served them very well at all. Uh, you know, they're, they're definitely the weaker ones where, to the point where we think we could fit them all into one episode. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. What's weird, though, is that the way these four work, because of the time frame gap, it still falls with Darth Vader being a prominent character. So it kind of feels like he gets four issues. And so in that regard, if you if you looked at it, you know, as a, a four issue Vader arc, it kind of works more. But that requires you to grab each of these, you know, the rebellion and the dark times. So so that fails that little bit of the checklist. So I, the checklist is a little difficult staying spoiler free for me at this point i i don't think though uh i i want to say i would rank dark times a little higher than rebellion but barely uh you know the dark times one i, I again i think it works in the aspect of what's going on on the Hameli ship the unpronounceable ship uh the fact that they've been carrying this this chest thing you know we haven't known what it was but now we finally are told and it works in that regard that Bomo has been kind of wanting to know what was going on, but now they're finally giving him that trust based off the last arc for dark times. So now he's being kind of like let in on the fold. So it's kind of like that veil's being lifted off for you, the reader. You're now getting to see what's going on and what they're doing and what they're up to. And in that regard, it works for the vector story. But beyond that, I don't know how much more the dark times characters really help the story. They, they don't seem to really do much for Celeste. You know, they're just kind of there as observers. It's more Vader and Celeste. Uh, so, you know, in that regard, I, I kind of think it fails in a lot of areas. I think that the fact that they only went with two issues is probably why. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentient of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. All right, so Dark Times number 11, again by Mick Harrison slash Randy Stradley with art by Doug Wheatley, uh, is part 5 of 12 of Vector, part 1 of 2 of Vector in Dark Times. And we start, and boy do I miss the days where we had these types of clear chronological notations for stories. I'm looking at you, the new Darth Vader series, over and over again. Um... But three months after uh, the rise of Palpatine as uh, the Emperor, three months after Revenge of the Sith, we get a brief scene in which Jenks, remember him, the weird skeletal-looking dude, he, uh, he was captured back in, I believe it was Parallels? Well, Jenks, being captured back then, was apparently meant to set up Vector, because Jenks is interrogated by Vader, uh, with a, a person we haven't met before, a scientist named uh, Fane Paturi at his side. And we don't know exactly what it is that he learns, at least not initially, because then it jumps again three weeks into the future from there. So we're just about four months uh, after the events of Revenge of the Sith at this point, and they are laying it out very cleanly, thank goodness. And we finally get to find out here what is going on inside that case. Uh, we come to the Uhu Melee, and uh, in the first arc, there was hints at this case, this cargo they were carrying, this mysterious cargo. And then we found out in Parallels that the cargo itself was this container, because he was trying to sell it, and everything went wrong, uh, making them now kind of gun-shy about trying to find a new buyer for it. And finally, they open it up to show uh, Bomo Greenbark what exactly it is inside, and it turns out, much like a Russian doll, inside the box is another box. And 
it, it's it almost looks like it's the torpedo they stuck Spock's body in uh, in Wrath of Khan. Pretty much, it looks like a a, a torpedo. It's it's hard to recognize this as Lord Draper's obliette from mm. uh, Kotor, but that's what it is supposed to be. Um, they give us some brief background on it, saying that um, it, now we know that it was on Jebel when uh, Cassus Fett did the whole bombing of it. We know that from Kotor, and it fell into the water on this freezing world. So apparently, uh, 1,400 years previous to this arc of Dark Times, uh, ice miners on Jebel managed to find it under a kilometer of ice. Um, they couldn't get inside it, but they assumed, hey, it must be something valuable, because otherwise, why would someone hide it? Mm. Um, they wind up having people fight over it for years and years, not even knowing what is inside the thing, as it comes to be known as the so-called uh, Jebel Box over the centuries, uh, and it was during a, a battle uh, several years ago when it managed to fall into the possession of the crew of the Uhumele, who seemed to have been there mainly looking for salvage after that huge battle was over with. They have no idea what was in it, though, um, and there's there's a question of whether or not anything about it was really uh, worth it. You know, He says, frankly, I don't know, nor at this point do I care. I only wish to sell it and be rid of it, is what Shirk Heron, the, the captain of the ship, says. Like, you know, well, I hope this deal goes better than the last one. And Sherk Heron is angry about, you know, don't you think I keenly feel the loss of the people who had died, right? Jenks was captured, and Snuffles, um, or Snivels, excuse me, uh, his name is, is Kura Snifflimata. Yeah, Sniffles um, wound up getting killed during the events of Parallels. So, with one crew member gone, one crew member dead, and again, Das Janir not there, because after he killed the person who had eaten Bomo's daughter, uh, they basically parted ways at the end of the Path to Nowhere, so he's out of the picture until Blue Harvest. There is some question of, well, is this worth it, and where do we go from here? And apparently, where they go from here is to meet with a new potential buyer. Yeah, you know, one of the things I like about it is, is you know, the the flashing of, you know, the, that moving forward, like we were talking about in the spoiler-free part of how we went from KOTOR, we see how it moved here to how it came into possession. It's interesting, though, that, that you would fight a huge war over this box, and yet everybody was slaughtered and nobody even got the box. Like, I mean, it's exactly right where it was left in the middle of the war, which is kind of cool because you can see, like, all the bones and stuff of all the people that were in the panel above it just still in the same spot. But it gets back to that head-scratching moment, like, nobody survived? Like, how did that work, you know? And and the aspect also is I don't know how comfortable I would be buying and selling things I have no idea what's inside this box. I mean, like, especially in times of Emperor Palpatine's empire. I mean, you, you know, you could be holding on to something that could easily get you killed. I don't know if that would be something I'd be too keen to be trying to sell or move. Uh, again, this kind of, you know, it, it wasn't at the time, but it does give me that Firefly feel of Malcolm Reynolds as uh, Hearn, uh, you know, in a rock and a hard place. He's, you know, trying to fight against an establishment that, that he can't. And he's trying to stay below the radar and yet keep his crew afloat and is just having, you know, one bad income after another. He's just getting nailed left and right to the point where even his crew is starting to, you know, come and question what he's doing, questioning his friends, questioning the people that are loyal to him, you know, things like that. So I don't know. I mean, for, I'm starting more and more as I reread these to kind of relate to him, whereas before I kind of always thought of him as a, as a joke character, whereas now not so much. I mean, I, I guess it's the uh, Reynolds effect. So that brings them to uh, this barren planet or moon that they're landing on here. And 
they say, well, yeah, yeah, this guy that we're going to sell it to, Fane Paturi, um, yeah, he's a scholar. He has no ties to criminal organizations. We don't know where he gets his money from, but you know, he seems to be a historian, so this should be a safe person to sell it to. Uh, they, of course, go armed because they're not stupid. Um, but the intention is, hey, we're going to sell it to this guy. Everything will be okay. It's out of our hands. And instead, they show up and find that Paturi did not come alone. He came with a crap ton of stormtroopers and Darth Vader. They're not planning on buying anything. Uh, he said, you know, Vader just says to take them and get the crate. And it turns out basically that uh, Paturi, a historian, knows about the Jebel box and knows about its contents, or thinks he knows about its contents, based on a recording from Griff from back in the days of KOTOR. Uh, he talks about Celeste, he talks about the Muir Talisman and such, um, about it being an artifact, etc., 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 that it's Lord Drapa's Obliette, uh, which it is encased within, etc., etc., and then it's even interrupted briefly by a uh, Zane, who's basically asking, you know, what the heck are you doing? He's like, oh, it's my memoirs and such. Um, but by piecing together stories of the Jibblebox with the information from that recording, they think, and rightly so, that uh, they figured out that this thing that the Uhumele was carrying is the Jibblebox, which is the Obliette, which inside it should have, and they don't really care about Celeste, should have the Muir Talisman, uh, which would be something that Vader would be able to use uh, as far as his own search for power, and presumably at this point, to eventually overthrow the Emperor, because remember, this is still fairly soon after Revenge of the Sith, and Anakin's whole purpose was, you know, uh, I'm more powerful than him, I can overthrow him, and all that, and hopefully my my brief uh, recital of those lines there was just as nearly emotionless as Hayden Christensen's was. Um, but suffice to say, now Vader has his hands on the box, and the rest of the crew is basically just tied up. Um, it's kind of one of those weird ways of, of, of tying them up. There aren't a bunch of little poles around when they arrive, so apparently the stormtroopers must take a bunch of, like, little cement-looking poles, like the kind of thing you would see to stop somebody from parking in a particular place, and slam them into the ground so that there is just enough for the entire crew, six of them, uh, so that they can all be chained up with their hands bound and connected to these poles uh, relatively close, so they can have a front row seat as Vader opens up the Obliette. That seems odd to me. Why not just kill them or send them away? Why put them in for a front row view? But at the same time, that's the only way in a lot of ways that this crew is initially involved, it, at least with you know the opening of the box and the Muir Talisman at first coming out and Celeste and all that. I mean, they really are there, as you said, Mark, as spectators. I think mm -hmm. that's one of the ways that this kind of threw me because... They want it to be something that has meaning for the characters and the story direction of all the series that it touches. And yet, these issues, aside from them being the ones to bring it and for them to run like hell to get away from it, the crew does very, very little in this arc of Dark Times. Well, and the other weird thing is, is you know, why did they take the crate that the Oblix in and put it up on that stairs that goes up to like a little altar dial it's weird like they've built a platform for it to sit on that they I, I don't understand that at all it's like you know if you go back a page they're pushing it on the repulsor pad and obviously they bring it inside to the one guy's you know workshop which is okay so he's got a workshop set up on the inside like there's nothing that explains 
what's going on with that little dude or or why there is this whole workshop set up inside or if there's been a passage of time like did he already have this shop set up was this always like his location and he's just like hey vader i've got these guys coming to my private little lair why don't you uh show up and let's all attack them i I mean there's nothing there to tell you so it's like all of a sudden they're down below they've got those things drove into the ground they're looking up a set of steps to like a stage and then on that stage is another stairway coming towards them with another raised part with the dais now sitting on that that vader now walks up to and is on top of it so so that just never really sat right it was like wait what like i don't know i there was too much that was assumed I would understand that I just did not understand, which I, I will admit is the problem with dark times in general. They they expect you to just assume a lot of things that I don't know how they expect you to come to those conclusions based off of the little bit of drawing and, and, and the little bit of story that we get the, to go along with it. Yeah, and my thing is it's, it's – I mean I guess they could have had those little cement-looking uh, poles – because I'm looking at it, and initially, until you said, hey, they brought it inside, I had no reason to believe that they brought it inside. The outside where they have the stormtroopers surrounding them and the inside where it's up on the pedestal are really, really similar in how they are designed. Uh, the artwork is, I mean, it's decent artwork. It's, I mean, not really much to complain about given what we just got with the KOTOR part of Vector where we couldn't tell if Celeste was supposed to be a human woman or a freaking monkey. But... Uh, it does manage to have and uh, cause issues with being able to follow it at times. Um, yeah, so- I mean, this could be easily be like a sacrificial chamber where they're attached. I mean, the the ground underneath the poles look like they've been driven in, but that doesn't mean that they were driven in by the stormtroopers per se. This could easily be a room where you know slaves were brought in and watched as they were sacrificed one after another to some dark god. But th- again, there's there's nothing there to really latch onto. It's just leaving you to assume. And barring wanting to use the crew as test subjects, that again makes it a head-scratcher because not only is it, hey, let's give you front-row seats, we're going to take you inside while he does his research so you can sit there and watch him do the research before all hell breaks loose. Uh, here, come on in, visitors. We'll tie you up inside instead of killing you out here or sending you away. It's, it's It feels very un-Vader-like unless he wanted them to be essentially test subjects. So... Uh, Paturian wants to take some more readings. Vader, of course, is impatient, and he uses his lightsaber to simply slice off uh, the container that it's in. And it must be a heck of a slice um, along the way, because it winds up taking off the top, and then the sides essentially fall away. Um, Paturi doesn't want him to open up the casket yet, doesn't want him to open up the oubliette, because of the effects of the mirror talisman. He believes that, you know, exposing sentience to it will transform them into right ghouls. And of course, at this point, there's not a lot that's known about the Muir Talisman. Uh, in fact, heck, you know, Bomo even asks, you know, he says, he, you know, he doesn't know what the right ghouls are, but that doesn't sound good. So it's not as though this is a well-known thing anymore. So there is some question, okay, is it going to turn everyone into right ghouls? Is there a difference based on species? Because there seemed to be one back in KOTOR. We'll find out soon enough as Vader finally opens up the oubliette itself. And there inside is a decidedly human female, as opposed to monkey-looking, Celeste Morn, uh, with the mirror talisman on her. Um, Paturi doesn't believe there's any way that she could have survived that long, um, even with a so-called stasis casket. But sure enough, thanks to the talisman and the casket, she awakens. She initially thinks that Vader is a Jedi who's come to free her, but of course... um, she still has the talisman on. She still has the, the, the mind of Karnas Mirror linking up with hers. She has his uh, 
a spirit, if you want to call it that, uh, visible to her as he was as we got to the end of KOTOR. And uh, Karnas Mira is, is angry, to say the least, about the idea that he has been trapped. He's been brought back thanks to the Mirror Talisman, thanks to Celeste's body, and yet he just spent thousands of years locked away inside Drapa's box. Um, Paturi is able to explain to her that she has been in there for basically 4,000 years. Um, and she starts asking, of course, questions about, you know, what happened, you know, what's, uh, what has transpired, what about the people that I've cared about, what about what I served, right? So what about the Covenant? Was it successful? He has no idea what that is. Uh, what about the Rat Ghouls? Well, they're isolated on Terrace and they were eventually wiped out. Uh, the Mandalorians didn't conquer the Republic. Uh, the Republic, though, doesn't stand. It was overthrown by the Sith. And when he says, by the Sith, he points, and, you know, it, it would have been something where if he didn't point, all hell might not have broken loose quite yet. But he says it was overthrown by the Sith and points directly at Vader. And that's when Celeste angrily recognizes, Sith? Uh, I should have sensed it sooner. And Karnas Mirror sees an opportunity with a much more powerful being in Vader than Celeste. She ignites her lightsaber and jumps into the fray, immediately attacking Vader. And I gotta say, the panel of her leaping and attacking Vader is one of the highlights of Vector when it comes to the artwork. It's really nicely done. Vader still is fighting with the one-handed approach that we see him use quite a bit. Uh, and in her case, her jump actually, it, it, it doesn't look comedic. A lot of times a jumping attack looks a little awkward. Hers looks very much like something you would actually see in real life, if these people were using, say, katanas instead of lightsabers, uh, trying to make that kind of jump. It, it, it's a really nice piece of art. And the fact that she immediately jumps into the fray to attack him as a Sith shows that, as a character, I mean, she's been in stasis, but despite Muir being in her head, I mean, she is still who she was the last time we saw her. She is an agent of the Jedi who wants to wipe out and defeat the Sith. And as soon as she sees a Sith within proximity, she will attack. Uh, that was certainly very consistent for her. Yeah, that, you know, and I want to take a moment just to address the art. I love the fact that they decided to go away from the style that we had in the first four issues of the Vector story arc. I mean, the, the cartoonness of what was going on in the KOTOR era at that time, I was dreading that it was going to continue on into this, and it didn't. Uh, th this continues to have that dark times, gritty, dark kind of feel. Uh, Celeste Morn, she's a strong, beautiful character. And the fact that, you know, I, I don't know. It, it works the way that the mirror talisman is attached to her throat like a, a bit of jewelry. Uh, you know, it, it works in that regard as well as it, it fits into her costume. It doesn't look like it's too far out of place for her to have it on there. Uh, but, yeah, when, when she figures that out and she jumps at it, I love the fact, though, that, that it alludes that the whole time she was there, she was thinking or was, was conscious of what was going on. Uh, you know, uh, it's Mir himself. He goes, curse that fool Draper and his blasted oubliette. What use is it to live through the millennia if one is trapped inside a box and to be put inside so soon after finding a suitable host? You know, and I'm assuming the suitable host in this case was Zane, uh, which gets back to that unspoken tie, you know, that, that, that Zane could possibly be of the same bloodline that Vader and, and the rest of the Skywalkers come from, you know, that, that, you know, Muir immediately dials in on the strong force users. Although Zane wouldn't be one that I would naturally consider a strong force user, but apparently Muir thinks that she, that he was more a suitable host than 
Celeste was. So I don't know. I, I still I keep thinking that there's got to be some kind of tie there. Uh, but I love the fact that, yeah, that that panel where she's up there and you got the little like rose thorn bushes down in the bottom and you've got the what's weird is this there's. I don't know, the underwater coral type stuff attached to it. Like it gives it the same look that the uh, oublet had had itself from being underneath the water. So it kind of gives you like that sense, like maybe this planet itself has gone underneath the water at some point, or maybe that's why there's no one around now is because at some point it would have been flooded. And then finally the floods had subsided. There's no word as to why they came to this planet. All we know is why Captain Hearn chose this planet. So I, I don't know. Part of me wants to say that that the Empire was behind it. It would have been nice to have maybe something where they put that into subtext for you, you know, where you're not having to grasp at straws. But yeah, clearly the art has come up a long way from the first beginning for issues of Vector. Of course, their fight continues, and she's not exactly going to be a match for Vader, at least not uh, without using the talisman itself. You had a nice quick fight scene. She's taking out clones. She's also taking out... Uh, many pieces of the scenery, so to speak, because Vader starts throwing things at her uh, that she manages to slice up and that sort of thing so that it doesn't hurt her. And, of course, in the midst of all of this, you have the crew of the Uhumele who are still tied up, um, who have, you know, things flying by them. You know, they're really kind of out in the open. Thankfully, most of the fight is taking place on a raised area uh, up a small amount of steps uh, rather than being right in their faces. They're kind of getting hit by the things that manage to pass the main fight, as opposed to being caught in the middle of it where they're likely to get cut into pieces, but that could change at any time. So they start trying to find a way to escape. Sure, Karen starts trying to, to pull basically his little concrete thing out of the ground in order to manage to, to free himself so he can free the others, and the issue ends as Vader and Celeste have their blades crossed. Uh, she says, you know, Sith scum, I devoted my life to destroying your kind. And Vader replies, and yet look at yourself. Consumed by anger, fear, self-loathing at what you have already become. You have but to give in to the power that you feel. Embrace the dark side. Never! In traditional Star Wars fare. Um, and our last line actually comes from Bomo, saying, I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, very, very true. Uh, all hell is certainly breaking loose, and it will continue to do so as we move into issue number 12. Uh, a decent ending to that first issue but it very much feels like something meant to be read back-to-back -back or in a trade paperback because, you know, as endings go, that is somewhat abrupt in this case. Hey, yeah, that's why I really feel like they should have given it at least one more issue. There, there was so much that they could have provided to the reader to really set them in. I mean, with the, with the set of goals that they have set out for themselves, two issues just doesn't seem enough. I mean, we're, we're already halfway through the story now. And all we really know is what we brought from the other Vector arc. I mean, uh, otherwise, you have real – I mean, you're, you're sitting here just like the crew. You're like, wait, what's going on? If you had no idea who this character was, you just have that quick, brief little hologram. You have the scientist saying, hey, this is what's going on. But beyond that, you have to take him at his word at being an expert in his field. I mean, there's there's nothing really there no little caption bubbles, anything like that to really fill you in. I mean, we have Captain Hearn telling Raddy that the, that the Sith were an ancient uh, evil religion that they thought were extinct. But beyond that, there's really no history here. And I think that's the thing I'm missing. Whereas in the first one, you kind of get a little history. I mean, they, they give you some of the background when they were having their visions and stuff. But this is missing that entirely. So this era, the Dark Times era, they really have no idea the the 
all-encompassing galactic evil that is about to be unleashed or could be unleashed. Granted, as we get into the next issue, Vader's going to start to figure that out. But I really think they could have gone one more issue and it, it would have served the story a heck of a lot better. Yeah, as it stands, it feels like it's extremely compressed and there's not a lot of there there, as the old saying goes. Uh, moving into issue number 12, we do have a slight shift in the creative team. It is still Mick Harrison slash Randy Stradley doing the writing. Doug Wheatley does do the art for pages 11 through 22, but the first 10 are by Dave Ross this time around. Which so, do have an effect, but not much. Yeah, there's not nearly as much of a difference between these two artists as there is, say, between uh, them, either of them, and what we got with KOTOR. Well, I would say the closest thing to this, you know, the new style of Dave Ross, it, it's her ponytail. It gets a little KOTOR-esque. It's like suddenly it's like as thick around as an arm. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It is a pretty thick ponytail at this point. Um, they continue to fight, essentially, um, and she is being bested. And uh, there's this sense uh, where basically Carnus Mirror is basically saying, look, you know, he wants to jump over to Vader, but hey, you know, there's only one way that she'll be able to defeat him, to use the power that he offers, to give herself over to him and her ability, thanks to the talisman, to create wreck ghouls, which is not something that at least at first she's willing to do. Yeah. It says, the spirit of the long-dead Sith Lord is right. The one called Vader is strong, stronger than she feels right now. And he is possibly willing to unleash Carnosphere's retgul plague on the galaxy. Surrender is not an option, nor is defeat, though it seems inevitable. And she, of course, strikes against him. You would think she would look for some other option, like escape, if she knows that defeat is essentially inevitable. But no, she continues <laughs> uh, going forward to attack. And it's not doing her any good. He manages to essentially pin her against the wall with his lightsaber to her throat. Uh, and it, we get a really cool... It, one thing that this series, that Vector does, uh, that's pretty cool, is these visions of what might be. There was a vision of what might be that kicked off stuff in KOTOR where we saw the poorly drawn uh, Cade and Luke and Vader and Zane all together in this vision from the Covenant. And here... Uh, the narration itself says, And so it comes to an impossible choice. Give in to Karnas Mirror and use the power of an ancient Sith Lord to defeat a new one and lose her soul in the process, or choose death and let Nur's power pass to Vader, dooming the galaxy to a living hell. Celeste Morin can only imagine how someone with Vader's unrestrained rage would use Mirror's power. There is no choice at all. And it shows basically an image of Vader standing atop the ruins of civilization with his lightsaber held in the air and a bunch of wreck ghouls at his side carrying weapons, right? Because remember, the rat ghouls uh, that are infected, and just being infected turns you into rat ghoul and you can continue to spread it. But you can also be turned into a rat ghoul by uh, the talisman itself. And the talisman essentially lets you control someone in whom the plague itself has essentially emptied out their soul or emptied out their conscious mind. So as long as you've got the talisman, rat ghouls aren't mindless so much as they are like your puppets. And they can use weapons. So here's these rat ghouls that are more dangerous than any rat ghouls we saw back in the KOTOR video game, because now they do have a purpose, now they do have these weapons, very much like the Mando racks back in KOTOR. And there's a sense of, oh crap, this could be ugly. Um, but Vader himself is seeing a vision of a possible future. As Vader's come to a crux of his own, he can feel the power the talisman holds. He could slay this Jedi, be done with her, but... By embracing the power of the mirror talisman, will he achieve his objective, that is, getting rid of Palpatine, or merely trade one master for another? So we have this cool image of, I guess, the Imperial throne room 
with Palpatine dead with what appears to be uh, a lightsaber wound through his forehead, stabbed, uh, but Vader to the side, kneeling before the spirit of Carnus Muir, and that same red sort of spirit that we see any time that Celeste is seeing him. So Celeste herself sees the only option as being to keep it out of Vader's hands, but even Vader wonders whether or not this is the right path for him. As you were mentioning, the idea that even Vader comes to wonder if using this is really worth it. I thought that was kind Mm -hmm. of an interesting take. It's very much, say, like, um, uh, in a sense, the way the Cold War works, whereas both sides had nuclear weapons, but there were people on both sides wary of actually using them, hence the whole mutually assured destruction mad Mm -hmm. thing um, that kept the Cold War cold for all of those years. In a sense, this is uh, a Sith artifact being treated in very much the same way. Well, and another plot that, that will be picked up in the in the next series in Rebellion, but it's hinted at here. When we first open the panel, Vader, the first thing said, I'm offering you the chance to rule the galaxy at my side. He's looking for an apprentice still. He's looking to throw Palpatine to the side. And this is, again, that missed opportunity. They could have explained that a little more. I mean, when we get to that point where, where you just described where Vader has, and it goes into Vader's head in the little yellow narrative box, if they'd have done something like that, maybe in the last issue, you know, when when they showed him coming to Jenks, you know, give a reason why he's doing what he's doing, point out the fact that he's looking for an apprentice, that he's looking, he's actively seeking for ways to topple Palpatine, but covertly. Because you don't get that really here. That was the only little hint. And then when you get into Rebellion, they're going to talk more that that was why Vader was doing what he was doing. He was looking for ways to topple. And it's like, wait, but that wasn't really mentioned. You had just one panel where he's talking to her and he tells her that. And that's about it. I mean, once you get that concept, though, more of what Vader's doing makes more sense. And the fact that he's willing to question, you know, do I really want to go this route? Or am I just going to be saddling myself to another master? That, that was the deep point. But again, I really think that that this would have been served more if they'd have filled it out more. You know, not expected us to just guess what was going on so much, but actually spell it out. I know there's a lot of people that hate having things spelled out, but I think in this case it would have helped a lot more when it comes to going from Kotor to Dark Times to Rebellion. Uh, you know, I think I think once you hit the dark time into rebellion there's a there's a disconnect in the story where it requires a little more stopping and and not following it as deeply as you were in say kotor because now things don't quite always line up the motivations and the motives behind things aren't lining up as well as they should i do like the fact that this is an era in which uh, anytime we see vader there's that sense of he's loyal to the emperor but only to a point. He really wants to wind up eventually overthrowing him, finding an apprentice of his own, becoming the Sith master, and so forth, as the Sith tend to do. Um, and you and they play into that here, uh, at least a little bit. The next scene, or the next segment of the scene, it's almost like they realize, oh crap, we only have like two-thirds of one issue left to finish out this story. Let's rush, 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 and get it done. Yeah, um, what was the doctor doing? The I, doctor I, I, was a, apparently the doctor is just trying to slip away... And as he's trying to slip away, Vader catches him as he's walking away and essentially reveals that he's figured out that Paturi actually was there working for the Emperor. You know, he was forced to play that part. Uh, the Emperor sensed his desire to usurp him uh, to find an, appoint- uh, an apprentice, and he was supposed to aid him in that quest, presumably so that Vader himself uh, could be brought low by either not finding an apprentice or finding one and then facing him and invader being put in his place again. But now that uh, Paturi has been found out, there is no need 
for him to still be around. And apparently the Rat Ghoul Plague, caused by the Talisman, has already infected him even through his containment suit. And Vader says, did you really believe a suit designed to protect you from germs and viruses could shield you from the effects of Sith magic? But of course, we know this is supposed to be some kind of, of disease that is used, again, the way it was explained back in KOTOR. The talisman lets you impose your will on someone else by essentially hollowing them out. But it is easier to hollow them out if this virus hits someone and turns them into a rat ghoul. That's why, that's what they're trying to do in order to control someone, because not all species can be controlled by the mere talisman directly, like as either Jedi and certain species. So there's this disease attached to it, which then can be used as a vector, so that it, the talisman spreads the disease, the talisman spreads that, that force-based control. But in KOTOR, at least, it made it sound like the disease itself was an actual pathogen. It wasn't just dark side juju. Apparently, that pathogen must have its own dark side juju, because somehow it is able to get to Baturi, uh, despite the fact that he is inside his containment suit. Because as Vader is holding him with the force, he turns into a rat ghoul because of the rat ghoul plague, uh, the pathogen part of this whole thing. Uh, he turns into a rat ghoul, his suit falls off, and of course Vader then kills him when he leaps forward. But this gives Celeste the moment that she needs uh, to stun the, the, the clone troopers briefly by lifting them all into the air at once, grabbing her lightsaber and entering the fray. So she now has her lightsaber to battle Vader. Sure, Karen is able to pull the little concrete pole or whatever it is, out of the ground, attacks a clone trooper with it, gets his blaster, and is able to free the rest of the crew, and basically the last few pages become a running uh, sequence of Celeste versus Vader trying to figure out a way to defeat him, while uh, Shirk Heron just tries to get the rest of the crew and race them back to the ship. They've been spectators, and now they're fleeing. They really don't have an active part in the conflict of this issue at all, aside from just dropping off the Obliette in the first stinking place. Um, but, I don't know, just the idea that that the, the Retgul play could affect him through the suit and that he talks about it being a Sith magic thing, mm -hmm. again, it's blurring the lines of exactly what is it the Sith talisman here, the mirror talisman, is supposed to do. We thought we got an explanation for it briefly in a couple of bits back in KOTOR. Now Vader seems to be suggesting it works a different way than we were told it worked back in KOTOR. See, I was under the impression that just by being near the talisman, it had enough dark side juju in the way it was set up to make you mutate into a rat ghoul. By mutating into the rat ghoul, if someone was wearing the talisman, they could control you. Or, through the talisman, they could use the force directly and make you turn unless you're one of those species or a Jedi that are immune. And in that case, then they would need to use the, the shell to have you be bit like a zombie Ella style where it gets into your bloodstream. And that is the plague. Once it gets into your bloodstream, mainly that the plague was mostly for those that, you know, weren't uh, just going to be in contact with it. Just by being in contact with it, it could change you. But unless you're immune, but this is how you can get around that is by being bit by these things. But yet, as long as no one's in control of the mere talisman, you're going to just have it acting as a plague. There's no consciousness directing any of these things. They're just, you know, zombie-esque. You know, they're just kind of going out there. They're just trying to feed. Uh, once someone's wearing it, now you've got control. 
Um, now it's now it's more uh, weaponized, uh, if you will. Uh, but you can kind of get around the fact that like Jedi can't do it by affecting them by you know having your rack go bite them kind of thing. But yeah, there is that weird like okay, when is the magic happening versus when is the disease spreading itself because of the contact? But yeah, the fact that. I, I originally had thought that she had caused him to do it, but no, as we see later, you know, once she, once she makes the conscious decision, it's like a flip of the switch and anyone around her kind of thing just gets taken over. But you do have to kind of question the fact that, you know, yeah, why was he immediately struck and not any of the other clones? You know, I mean, what, what was it? Was it something he was specifically doing? There, there's nothing there that tells you. So, yeah, the, it does keep that line blurred where you're kind of scratching your head going, wait, do I understand this correctly? And the last few pages are where it seems like they are trying to give this uh, that long-term effect here. You have basically Celeste decided that there is only one way to defeat Vader. She can't do it on her own, and once she's dead, he'll take the talisman, and that horrible possible future will come to pass where Vader has that power. So instead, she opens herself up to all the power that Mira has to offer... And she takes active control of the talisman and uses its power. Now you see this like burst of red energy, which I guess is supposed to be sort of a spiritual energy type thing, not something actually visibly seen. And all of a sudden, the clones start dropping down to their knees and they start becoming rat ghouls. The idea being that, you know, that Vader can't get the talisman if he's dead. So turn all the sentience that she possibly can on the moon into rat ghouls. They'll attack Vader and hopefully kill him or change him so that he can't get his hands on the talisman. Um, Vader recognizes this, and Vader uh, beats a hasty escape, getting onto his shuttle and escaping from uh, the planet or moon that they're on. Um, whereas the crew is still racing back to the Uhu Melee, and apparently none of the species of the crew, with the exception of human, get affected by the talisman. But the talisman's uh, far-reaching... Power manages to hit Chris Tanzier, uh, the one human woman here, the one that we learned in the previous arc had uh, a son she thought was dead, who turns out the son is with Kukruk during the events of Parallels and will be again uh, the next time we see Kukruk and, and his little cadre of characters there. She gets affected very quickly. Uh, she's bleeding from one of her eyes. Uh, her only line that she utters is, K-Kubg? Uh, K-K-U-B-B-G-H, for those of you paying attention to spelling there. Um, and unable to do anything for her, she turns into a rat ghoul, and once she turns, uh, sure, Karen has no choice, and you can even see sort of a tear, it looks like, happening at the time. He has no choice but to blast and kill her, because she's not Chris Tanzier anymore. And, of course, they manage to get the Uhumele up uh, and into space, and, and the big shock, really, is that they've lost Jenks to capture, then Sniffles back in parallels, and now they've lost Chris. And, of course, Das Janir is not with them either, thanks to the events of the Path to Nowhere. Uh, so they are slowly being whittled down in that sense. And uh, we get a couple of good moments here as, as things are ending. Vader, as he's leaving, notes essentially there's not an apprentice here, there is only death. Uh, the plan ended in failure. No, not failure, disaster. This ancient Jedi, this Celeste Morn, will not be the one to aid him in overthrowing his master. Will not be the apprentice he had hoped for. The only good thing to come from this venture is that there are no survivors to carry word of his attempt back to the Emperor. This will not end his search. Okay, A, he doesn't realize who Melee has managed to escape, apparently, because there are survivors that could carry it back. It's just they're not Imperial, so they're not likely to tell the Emperor directly about it. But you would think at this moment that Vader would say, um, 
And since this is a huge threat and I can't make use of it as far as I know, I'll turn around and order this entire freaking planet nuked. But he doesn't. And presumably that is so that he can then make use of it in rebellion. But you get that sort of, wait a second, Vader doesn't just have this place wiped out? That seems either very long-sighted of him in that he is realizing he could use this perhaps in the future, or very short-sighted because he just wants to get the hell out of there rather than eliminating a possible threat to the Empire. Uh, as for Celeste, she remains on the planet, uh, says uh, Celeste Moore. No, she is stranded here on this desolate world, probably forever. Perhaps one day someone will come to rescue her, to claim the talisman. She will deal with that when or if that day arrives. For now, her only companions are her mindlessly loyal band of rat ghouls and the furious spirit of the ancient Sith Lord Karnas Muir. But let him rail. There is no escape from him, whether on the prison world or within the timeless confines of Lord Drapus Obliet, and she has no intention of returning to that nightmare vault. Instead, she will take solace that Karnas Muir, at least, is as much a prisoner as she. So basically, for the next, oh, 19, give or take, years or so, as we move from dark times into rebellion, Celeste Morn is basically going to be alive and well and awake on this world with the rat ghouls, who eventually will run out of food, um, with the spirit of Karnas Muir constantly there, essentially at her side. But at least at the moment, she's the one effectively in control of the talisman, rather than him having control over her. And, I don't know, it, it, it sets up what happens in Rebellion. You know, Vader's gone, he knows that it's there, he knows the rat ghouls are there, he knows Celeste is there, Celeste is, is awake, so she's out of the Obliette, so we move that way past what happened in KOTOR, but honestly, the death of Chris Tanzier, uh, that to me was kind of like, yeah, because we really hadn't been given a lot of reason to like the members of this crew yet anyway. We'd only really seen them back in two story arcs, and there's so many of them to go around that, that most of them don't get a whole lot of depth. Yes, we got some depth with Chris back in Parallels learning about, you know, her child, but then that makes this feel less like a tragedy for the crew that's going to send them off in a new direction because it really doesn't feel like it does. It's just another member of the crew is gone, just like what happened going into this arc. There were two members of the crew who were gone. Um, that in and of itself doesn't have a huge impact other than to make them constantly, you know, kind of, you know, gun shy because of losing crew members and such in the past. Um, but having just found out that her child is alive and there with Kakrook, it felt less like a tragedy for the crew and a game-changer for the series to me than it felt like a missed opportunity. And in fact, they call it out with basically a nyeh, 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 in the letters page, very much like the uh, Secrets of Mortis uh, documentary or supposed documentary on the Clone Wars video series set where it's like, yeah, yeah, uh, you thought you were watching a documentary about the Clone Wars and uh, Mortis, but we're not going to tell you anything. The nyeh, 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 this time is... The first lines as you're opening up the uh, letters page, well, for those of you hoping for the eventual reunion between Chris Tanzier and her son, Kenan, I'm sorry, that won't be happening. Well, okay. Uh, nice, I yeah. guess. Um, and then, of course, they're gone until 2009 and Blue Harvest. So... You know, it, it's a, it's kind of a quick little ending. It's very much a, a run-and-gun type of ending, actually kind of like the, the, the running panic that we're going to wind up finding in the Rebellion part of this. Um, I like that she chooses to be be stuck on her own on the planet um, rather than risk letting Karnas Mirror loose uh, or the spirit and, and the talisman itself loose. Um, I think it was a little odd that they just... I mean, 
it's like the only purpose of the Uhumele crew in this entire story, aside from dropping off the box, is so that one of their number can die mm-hmm. again. Um, yeah, th- that's where this thing very much falls flat for me because, I mean, it, even if I did care about Chris and the other members of the crew at this point, which at this point I, I haven't built up that type of a connection with them, um, it, it feels more like a wasted opportunity than anything else. Well, see, I had I, – I was pissed when Chris died because of that connection. I was really thinking, you know, we were going somewhere with that. It, she was one of the few characters that they gave you enough background to latch onto. So to lose her like that was like, are you kidding me? Like, really? Ah, that's how you're going to make – that's how you're going to justify your check on the box, by killing her. Oh, wow, we've impacted the crew. Thanks. Beep, beep. I mean, it just really made me mad. Uh, the moment, though, where uh, Celeste goes, let's end this, and Mira goes, yes, let it end. The Sith bested you before. He'll do it again. He will take the talisman, and then he'll be mine. I, I like the fact that it brings forward the fact that she's got two conflicts with Sith going on right now. You know, she's trying to, to keep her sanity and to defeat Mira. And at the same time, she's got to defeat Vader from getting the talisman because she knows that if he gets it, then Mir's going to have access to that Sith. So she's just basically, she's just trying to block him any way she can. So I like that conflict for Celeste. Uh, and then when she accepts the power, you know, he freaks out and Mir, what, what have you done, woman? That power is mine. You know, I, I, I like that. And so it kind of gets that aspect of maybe Vader, you know, didn't, think that the crew escaped maybe he thought they all turned i mean you know because everybody turned to rat so how are you really gonna know you know what one rat looks like from another oh hey that's a clone that's an alien that's uh wait wait maybe that's a clone i don't really know and, and the other side of things is is are every single rat that's created from a clone are they identical <laughs> or are they different they, they never really talk about that either but the moment where where chris is turning and uh Captain Hearn runs back, Greenbark, we must get the ship. And Greenbark's like, Captain, it's Chris. And it, it shows him, you know, Raddy comes up to Bomo at the same time. And Hearn puts his hand on Bomo's shoulder and he lifts the gun. He does the no, it's not. And she's like got her hair falling off her and everything. It, the way they do it, they go a couple panels. So it gives you that impression that Hearn's not just quick to pull the trigger. You know, Raddy then goes, Captain? And he's holding the trigger. And she, at this point, she starts to look up and she's growling. She's like, and then ready again captain and bomo's kind of stiff upper lip kind of thing got a tear welling up and then you go to you know the captain and the captain literally waits until she is mid-charge almost on top of him and he does have tears streaming down his face when he says chris and shoots her but you know the way he says no it's not and all that that was a that was a moment for me that that really was a hurtful moment i was one of those fans that i was i did not want to see her go i would have much rather seen anyone else go at that point than her because she was somebody i was really kind of hoping they were going to tie things into later i mean it was like you know you know we mentioned before how she kind of seemed like she was going to be a love interest for daz and then it seemed like they just decided mid-story we're not going to do that and it seemed like all this backstory they had for this character that they had built up to be this love interest was all just kind of just swept under the rug right here in this one quick moment. Like, hey, we can we can do one of our things on the checklist and mark it off, and we can get rid of this character that we had everybody care about that we decided, hey, we're not going to go that route. Uh, so instead of just you know sitting here with our with our pants down around our ankle, we can make it look like we planned it. I, I don't I don't for a minute think that they planned that. I think that, that Vector came along and they were trying to do some correctiveness here. But 
I think this also goes into that gap with Dark Times where things kind of went into that hiatus because Vector seemed to throw Dark Times more off a loop than doing any kind of vectoring with like, you know, in KOTOR you had uh, you had Alec looking out for Sith things because now he understood the power that Sith magic held. So, you know, there was part of the, the direction for him becoming Darth Malak. Uh, you know, Zane was, he had his name, he was going to start tracking down the, the covenant and stuff. I mean, you know, they all had purpose moving forward. These guys only purpose is run, which they were already doing. So I don't see, you know, they've gotten rid of the cask. They got no money for it. Nothing for them has changed aside from the fact that they're still just as fracked as they were before more. So now they've lost one more person, uh, to that regard, it just makes me scratch my head. I like the fact, though, that Vader left her behind on the planet. It does leave her out of the way. But when we get into Rebellion and the fact that the Rackles die, I, nowhere have they said that by having the mirror talisman, she doesn't need to eat, she doesn't need to have nourishment, and that she can live forever. I was under the impression that by putting her in the box, the Ublik thing, that was why she was able to live forever because she was in a stasis. But... From here moving forward, the stasis box is destroyed. She's not, or, or she's not getting back into it at least. And that there's a disconnect for me because it's like they don't explain why in the rest of the series going forward she doesn't seem to age at all, and she didn't starve on the planet because there's nothing there to sustain her. So in that regard, I, I start to scratch my head. But we'll get more into that as we get into the next series. Uh, yeah, the, the the whole aspect of them, you know rubbing it in your nose it irked me i i like the chris character so that bothered me but the fact that she went from being you know stomping mirror to imprisoning mirror that there was a, a moment of empowerment for her in this and so for her arc this one worked because it, it empowered her she now is in control of her body she now is creating a prison in herself for mirror whereas before she was trapped with mirror and I, I, it's kind of like taking the power back, you know, I mean, that, that she's just like, you know, I'm going to be in control now. I'm choosing to be in control, even though he can easily say, I'm, you're just as much a prisoner. And the fact is, she is a prisoner, but she's choosing to own it. And I like that fact for her character. Celeste, it works. But getting back to those checks, you you need to know what's going on with Celeste. I, I really don't think if, if you set the check boxes off to the side, I don't think any of it worked for this. Uh, I, I don't think it, it, I think it failed across the board on the checks. You need to go to the other comics. You need to know what's coming and going for it to work. Yeah, as we're rounding out things here, I would say of those three check marks, make sure the events in the crossover mean something to the characters in each of the four series, uh, that it changes the course of every series it touches. No, um, it means they don't have the box anymore. It means that Chris is dead. But yeah, other than that, not so much. It doesn't feel like it changes the course of the series, especially for the next arc. And to be honest, I'm not sure Dark Times really had a course that it was on. It sort of felt directionless for much of its run. Uh, and this is just a yet another bit of the same directionless feel to it. Um, must be reader-friendly uh, to both new and long-time readers. No, I don't think that a new reader reading this will know who the heck the crew of the Uhumele are uh, or what happened to Sniffles. Uh, that gets referenced repeatedly, and they certainly won't care when what happens to Chris happens to Chris, because they have no character development for that character whatsoever in this arc, besides turning into Ghoul and dying. All of our you-must-care-about-Chris 
um, writing comes in the previous arc. Uh, as for the third checkbox, that readers won't feel that they are forced to purchase uh, the other series because each uh, can work as a standalone. Um, if you're not wondering what happens in, you know, with this planet where she's left with all these rat ghouls, then the ending of it may be somewhat standalone. But he's right. You, unless you know more about Celeste and know more about the crew of the Uhu Melee, I don't see how someone who... Uh, just just like you need to know more about the Uhu Melee, so you need to read more Dark Times to really be able to get this story, you also need to have read the KOTOR stuff with Celeste in order to fully get this story uh, across series. So mm-hmm. no, I think in in all of the three checkboxes, they blew it with this one, which which scares me a little. And Well, it scared me back then. Now it just kind of makes me shrug. But it scared me because the guy writing this part of it is the guy in charge of the entire Star Wars line as the lead editor. We didn't know it at the time. He was writing under a pseudonym. But this is Randy Stradley, the man over Star Wars at Dark Horse. And yet, he winds up producing a part of this arc that fails in the things that they set as their mission in the first place, trying to produce Vector. And look at the Vader's... I mean, you know, you read it, you know, this plan ended in failure. No, not failure, disaster. This ancient Jedi, this Celeste Morn, will not be the one to help him in overthrowing his master, will not be the apprentice he had hoped for. Where in the first issue here of these two did he, did he say that that was what he was looking for? I mean, again, I only point out the only one panel here at the beginning of this issue, but nowhere did it say that's what Vader was doing, that Vader had an agenda here. I mean, they, they just they only threw that in in the second issue. They could have easily put that in there when he was, you know... Uh, taking and interrogating Jenks. They, they left that completely out. Like, if it wasn't for this last panel where they flat out tell you, yeah, Vader was just looking for an apprentice. Like, really? Like, I, I thought he was looking for a weapon. Like, they didn't tell you. Nowhere in there is it implied except for right there at the end that, oh, he was looking for an apprentice. What? I'm good if we want to move on to the next one. All right, so before we wrap up, we're going to hit our covers here. Uh, number 11, I think, is probably the the only one of the two that I even care for. I like the look of it. It, it, it suits the story of Vector going forward. You know, you see Celeste. She's in the, uh, the chamber. The stasis chamber's been opened. Vader's reaching down towards her. Ancient evil, unbound. I like the fact that it looks like it's in the cave. You know, the, the mistiness of the cover kind of goes with the very first of the uh, Vector covers that they gave us. That works for me. The second one, it's more of an action shot. She's in the middle of the battle with Vader. Vader's kind of swinging down. She's swinging up, and the, the doctor's like, oh, what's going on? I don't know. Uh, you know, and you see some stormtroopers down with the thorns and stuff. That one, it's just too crowded for me. I, I didn't really care for it as much of the two. Uh, it does have some, like, red, you know, with Vader's lightsaber and some red coming down to the hallway. But I, I think of the two, the, the number 11 cover is definitely the better one of the two. They're both pretty good. Travis Cheris did the one for 11, uh, Doug Wheatley for number 12. I mean, they work. You know, the characters look like they could be photo referenced off of something, which is good to look very realistic in this sense. Um, I have a hard time looking at number 11 without thinking Sleeping Beauty or somehow, you know, Vader is coming to kiss her and wake her up, a uh, very fairy tale like. And uh, the other one works too. It's very dark, the cover to number 12. You really need to put it into light to be able to see it well. But it works. You know, the first one, Ancient Evil Unbound. True. The uh, second one, Darth Vader versus a Knight of the Old Republic. Also true. 
Um, the only thing that really makes me scratch my head about either of these covers is the fact that for some reason, the like the little vector symbol of the uh, mirror talisman up in the top right corner has flipped upside down since KOTOR. In KOTOR, it was facing upwards. Now, for Dark Times, it's for some reason facing downwards? Well, what do we expect from a, a story where the guy writing it doesn't even use his name? Are we trying to hide something here? <laughs> now, now, there have been many who've done that. No, Samuel Clemens, and so forth. Mark Twain? True, true. <laughs> <laughs> Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. Help us grow as a show. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It is one of the best ways to interact with us. It's our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can also email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. That's right, and of course, if you want to check out that Amazon.com store that my wife and I run, is Amazon.com slash shops slash Lil Joe Collectibles. That's L-I-L-J-O Collectibles, all as one word. And if you are interested in uh, helping out with the insane uh, medical situation and medical bill situation that we've got going on right now, uh, uh, as of when we're recording this, the very next day after we record this, we are back up at the hospital again for another round of tests. Um to see if an unusual, very rare bacteria they found in her um, uh, digestive system has spread to her bloodstream, which is another thing that may require surgery. We're just kind of, every time we get up from something, we get smacked right back down again with this. Um, uh, if you want to, uh, to to help out, we are taking PayPal donations through uh, Nathan at StarWarsFanWorks.com through PayPal. Um, there's also a GoFundMe page that I'll uh, put the link up again on uh, the Beyond the Films page. But uh, the saga is still ongoing as far as all that stuff goes, unfortunately. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this is Ben, Mark, and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that Rebellion will actually check off all three boxes. Ooh, good one.